And so, here we are, we're in our parable series. So far, we've learned about the unmerciful servant, the lost coin, and the sower. And Jesus uses these parables based on common earthy things, like a coin, a vine, seeds, to communicate divine truths. The symbolism of the parables is rich in meaning, and Jesus used them often, so we should be paying attention to what he's trying to teach us through them. Today, we are looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, it's a classic, isn't it? It's very, very familiar. We all know it. We all know it very well, don't we? Even those that aren't regular church attenders, they, they know what a Good Samaritan is. News articles love a good Good Samaritan story. Let me just read to you some titles. If you put a quick Google News search in well, of Good Samaritan, let's read some titles. So the first one, Good Samaritan saves five kittens from flash flooding in Clifton. That's good. Kittens, that's, that's classic Good Samaritan territory, you know. Good Samaritan saves life of 72-year-olds stuck on train tracks. Amazing. That's, that's fantastic, you know. Good Samaritan saves manatee from falling victim to toxic seagrass. That's, a, that's an unusual one, isn't it? Uh, they come in all shapes and sizes, these Good Samaritans. You know, and culturally, we love the altruistic behaviour of Good Samaritans. It's often newsworthy. And let me just quickly tell you my own story of when I needed a Good Samaritan. There's actually a number of times which makes me feel like a bit of a damsel in distress. But anyway, the, there's been times where I needed a Good Samaritan. Like at 11 years of old, at 11 years of age, we want, went on a family skiing trip, our first family skiing trip down to Perisher. And I got lost on the ski slopes. <laughs> I've got absolutely no sense of direction, okay? Lucky we live in the age of Google Maps, so I can live like a normal human being, otherwise I would be in a lot of trouble. So that's probably part of the reason why I veered way off course. I got completely lost. I ended up on this incredibly steep black diamond run that I didn't have the skills to get down. I wasn't like this guy carving up. I was, I was finding my way, you know? And I got to this area of the mountain, and there's I, I couldn't get down it, and there was nobody else around. They're all at the normal side of the mountain having a great time. I'm out this other side, and I don't know what to do. So all alone on the ski slopes of Perisher at 11 years of age, had a few tears, and then I did the logical thing. I closed my eyes, and I went to sleep. <laughs> Not the best advice if you ever get lost in the snow, by the way. I don't recommend you do that. But fortunately, it worked out OK for me, because a good Samaritan came, found me, gathered my stuff together. I had, like, skis all over the place, because I'd rolled and stuff. So the skis down there, little poly things were all in different spots. What do you call the poly things? Poles? Poles? <laughs> okay. You can see I'm a great skier. I, I, I seem to know all the technical terms, don't I? But, uh, you know, he, he got me down that run. He got me back into the... He, he picked up all my stuff and helped me get down to where the coffee shop was and all the regular ski stuff was, and then, and then he left me there. I didn't even get, really get a chance to thank him. He just disappeared. And soon after, my family was there. I think they were looking for me. I hope they were looking for me. And, and they, they were, they were. And, and all was well, you know. So we hear this term, Good Samaritan, get bandied around quite a bit. And we all know kind of what it means in today's culture. But does that stack up with what the story is really about? In ancient Judea, the term Good Samaritan would have been incredibly controversial. Now, Jesus never titled the story that. That, that came later. But the truth, is, the truth is that the idea of a Good Samaritan was very much like an oxymoron just wouldn't have kind of made sense together. It's like saying the story of the kind-hearted arsonist or the generous jihadist. You know, like, it, it's not impossible, but it's just would have got people's attention. It's like, hang on, I've got to listen to this. This is, this is unusual. How does this story make sense? And we don't respond like that because it's so familiar. We're conditioned just to take it for granted. But we want to, we want to remove our cultural wrapping 
around this and really examine it for what it is. And first, we need to understand the context around this parable. It's very important that we understand why Jesus told this parable. What is he teaching those he told this parable to? What is he teaching us? So we're going to read Luke 10, 25 to 29 to get some answers around this. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? In this story, we've got an expert in the law, teacher in the law, depending on your translation. He comes to Jesus. He wants to test out Jesus with a question. Now, because this person is like involved in religious law, it's probably easy to think of them sometimes as like, oh, Pastor Dave, like a, like a pastor, you know, like Pastor Dave, Reverend Dr. John Sweetman, you know. But, but their role, this expert in the law, their role is actually not like a pastor. It's more like a lawyer in today's culture, you know. So the religious law was the law of the time. It was their job to interpret and inform others of the ramifications of these laws. So don't think of them as a pastor. Think of this guy you might, yeah, more like a lawyer. You know, pastors we might give a bit of empathy to, I hope, you know. But, uh, but think of them more like, not, not that we can't be empathetic to lawyers, but, you know, but think of them more as like a wily lawyer rather than a pastor. And now, when someone's trying to trap you with a question, a great way to respond sometimes and to restore power is to ask a question back. And Jesus is all over this. He uses this strategy multiple times, actually. And like when someone asks him in Matthew 22, should we pay imperial taxes to Caesar? He says, well, let me see a coin and asks, Whose image is this on the coin? And they answer, well, Caesar. So he says, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And they left amazed. So Jesus uses that question back and he says, so when he's asked, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks, well, how do you read it? And the guy's a lawyer. He knows it well. He says, with the well-documented golden rules behind all the ceremonial and moral laws that he knows, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and... Love your neighbour as yourself. You can almost feel the pause after he finishes that as the gravity of those words sink in. We've read them so many times. they become so familiar. But think about that. Love your neighbour as yourself. What does that look like? How do you even do that? Now, the Jew- Jewish law is aware that, oh, goodness, that's tough. I don't know if I can do that. But he wants to justify himself. So he asks, and who is my neighbour? Now, what he's... What, what, what is he, what's, he, what's he trying to do here is he's trying to whittle this down. He knows it's going to be very difficult to love everybody. He wants to compact it down to something that's doable, that he can tick off and go, yes, I've done it. I've earned my eternal life. And that's the whole catalyst behind Jesus telling this story. The premise is, what is the minimum I must do to earn my salvation? That's what this story is answering. So come with me. We're going to read the rest of the parable and that Jesus tells, we want to look for clues as to what Jesus is saying, how he answers this question, what is the minimum I must do to earn my salvation? We're going to pick it up in Luke 10, 30 to 37. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, 
When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So what, what clues can we see from this story? So what's the minimum we need to do to earn our salvation? Obviously, the hero in this story is the Samaritan, so we need to look at what he does to answer this question. The first thing that sticks out to me is just his immediate response when he sees this guy on the side of the road. In verse 33, it says he took pity on him. And the Greek word they use for pity is also translated in other verses of the Bible as moved with compassion. He's moved with compassion and he does something about it. He gets straight into helping him. He bandages him up, puts on putting oil and wine on his wounds. The health guidelines were a little bit different back then, so that would have actually been a good thing, you know, kind of. And a uh, and, and, uh, costly exercise, absolutely costly exercise, using his own oil and wine, along with paying the innkeeper, even saying he's going to do extra expenses as well. This is a costly exercise for the Samaritan. He goes all out without regard for his own comfort, without regard for his own finances, he displays what I would call costly compassion. Now that's a challenge, isn't it? To live with so much compassion, it actually costs us. It actually affects our standard of living. This is a real challenge. It's, we live in a very wealthy country. If you an update on the total value of, total, of all residential real estate in Australia is now $9.1 trillion. Huge. When you rank, all the countries of the world on median wealth per capita, you know who number one is? Australia. Now, we, we may not feel we all have an incredible amount of wealth, and some of us maybe don't, but there are many of us who do. And look, I find this hard. I'm not, I'm not rich by any means, but I can, I can still give a reasonable amount and still have a comfortable standard of living. It's, it's, it's kind of easy to give when we know we're going to be okay. Giving when it's really going to hurt, that... That's tough. And we see this in Mark 12, 41 to 44. Jesus is observing the offerings of the temple. And many rich people threw in these large amounts. But when a widow put in two copper coins, Jesus says, the rich people, they, they, they all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Wow. That's generous, you know. It's a costly compassion. It includes our finances, but also our time. You know, the, the Samaritan stops what he's doing to help the man take care of him. He makes sure he's looked after. Only that doesn't leave till the next day when he knows the innkeeper is going to take care of him. He sacrifices his own comfort. He could have gotten home, just relaxed, but instead, this took priority. Now, this, this costly compassion we're talking about, it's a, it's a tough ask. Like, this minimum requirements that we're looking at for salvation, it's already pretty tough. But to con fully convey the cost of this act of the Samaritan, we need to actually look at the location Jesus is talking about here. Jesus specifically refers to a real-life stretch of road. This particular stretch was also called the way of blood because of the amount of bloodshed by frequent robbers. Now, my house, my house has been broken into twice, which at the time was quite distressing, as you can know. The second time, Cass and I... We got home pretty late at night, and I went to open the door 
between the garage and the house. And I could hear some noises inside. <laughs> and my mind immediately went to thinking, oh no, because it happened not that long before, I was thinking, oh no, it's happened again. You know? And then I quickly shifted to, oh no, I don't really know if I want to open this door. I don't really want to talk to who's on the other side there. They're probably not my friends, because otherwise they'd probably come when I'm, when I'm home. You know? and, and also the safety of Cass, of course, yes, of course, you know, yes. And, uh, and, and after about kind of five, ten seconds, I kind of waited. There were no more noises. I kind of just peeked inside a little bit and saw the glass had all smashed at the back of the house. And I'm like, ooh, you know, so I went in there and went, get out of my house. And uh, I didn't actually do that. I didn't do that at all. I'm not brave enough to do that. I, uh, I went and got my neighbour and he came and uh, he came in with a baseball bat and kind of was like, yep. And there was, there was no one there. They, they, they'd gone, but it was, it was done, you know. And... Now, we've moved, we've beefed up security since then, so if anyone stumbles across this online, just know we're Fort Knox now. Don't get any ideas, okay? <laughs> our safety is important to us, you know, and we're blessed to live in a very safe country, but when we find ourselves in situations where we don't feel safe, it, 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 it doesn't feel good, does it, you know? Can you imagine how that Samaritan would, in the story may have felt? Someone's lying half dead on the side of the road. They're half dead, they haven't bled out yet, you know? The robbers could still very well be around. This has happened recently. What's to stop them from, if I get down and help them, what's to stop them from jumping down and robbing me too, and hurting me too? You know, interestingly, it would have been much safer for the priest or the Levite to stop and help the guy because of their identity as, as holy people. Robbers would pretty much never attack them. Maybe because they were pretty poor, maybe, or maybe the robbers wouldn't get much, but... There's more than that. There was kind of, you know, a robber code of conduct. They still feared God to some extent, so they would, they would leave the priests and Levites alone. But they weren't the ones that practiced mercy. It was the Samaritan that did, at the risk of his own life. Wow. That's costly compassion. A minimum bar to earn salvation that Jesus is talking about here, it's ramping up further. If we want to be like the Samaritan, we need to live costly compassion to the point where we may even have to sacrifice our own safety. That's, that's, that's tough. Now, we have someone um, who lives at our house, and I'm being incredibly honest here. He can actually be a little bit difficult to live with. He's, he's noisy. He, he never apologises for when, when he is noisy, and he, he wakes me up at night sometimes. He doesn't care for my preferred sleep patterns. He's got no regard for my personal hygiene. He's weed, he's pooed, and he's vomited on me. Then afterwards, he smiles about it sometimes, like he's happy with the destruction he caused. He looks like this. <laughs> and despite all of those detractions, I love him. I love him with costly compassion. He certainly affects my comfort, my finances, but I love him. And is, is loving Ezra, is living with costly compassion to him? Is, that, is even loving our kids or our, our parents, other family members, even stretching that further to our friends, is that enough? Well, not if we want to be like the Samaritan. It's, it's easier to act kindly to those who have similarities to us, who we like, who like us. This also extends to who we may be charitable to. Most Australians are happy to donate towards causes where there's hardship, which is really just not the fault of the person at all. You know, for example, the bushfires appeal, Afghanistan situation, crowdfunding for, for health conditions, you know. But what about those that we feel are in that situation? because of choices they have made. I have to admit that when I, when I think of people living in poverty overseas, I'm generally quite generous, you know? 
But sometimes for poorer people in Australia, even homeless people, I'm, just, I'm not always so quick to be generous. That's the, brutal, that's the hard and brutally honest truth for me, you know. And I think sometimes, well, we, we've got a pretty good safety net here. We've got Centrelink and, you know, government housing to help kind of avoid these situations. If somebody's really homeless, then, then maybe they've made some poor choices that have led to this. Sometimes my thought process thinks that, you know. And you know what this parable tells me about that, that challenges me about that, is that we don't get to make that call. That's not for us to decide. In this situation, we've got a Samaritan coming upon a Jew who's been beaten up, half dead on the side of the road. Now, we, we know that Samaritans don't like Jews and vice versa, but we probably understate that because in our culture, we would never denigrate a whole people group. You know, we, it's in an individualistic culture, we couldn't say that a whole people group is bad. We, we tend to base it more on individuals. You know? But think about it the way you might think about a vile criminal. I saw a news article last week about a man who murdered 10 children, horrible, and he escaped from prison. But before the, the police could find him, the community found him, and they beat him up and they killed him. And part of you probably goes, well, if anybody deserved that treatment, then he did. And the Jewish culture of the time, it taught the Samaritans were corrupting influences that probably deserved death. You know, that was pretty serious, you know, and vice versa. So when this parable is told, the listeners wouldn't, would assume that the Samaritan would come across this guy, half dead, and going, well, he's getting what he deserves. He's getting his just desserts. So to get down off his donkey and help this guy is actually incredibly gracious. It demonstrates the principle that we don't get to make the call of who is worthy of our compassion. We need to show costly compassion to all. It needs to be all-inclusive. So, if we want to be like the Samaritan, our bar has been raised again. We have this costly compassion, that's hard enough. Costly compassion to the point where it affects our standard of living and even maybe safety. But, but to do that to those who don't even like us, who, may, who, who might even hate us and who we don't like, that's a, that's a tall order. That's a tall order. Now there's just one more facet of this story which I think needs mentioning too. I'll make a really quick one. Now we all love being recognised for the good we do, right? It's pretty natural. Of course, of course, it's great to encourage others, that's fantastic. And it's not a bad thing to be encouraged, that's nice, but if this is the motivation behind what we are doing, then it can be a problem. You may have seen a few stories before where like um, a footage of someone and like they've given a meal or shoes or something to a homeless person and it kind of goes viral and everyone sees it and then later it's discovered that the person that leaked that video was the person in the video, you know? And it changes the whole story. They were only doing it for the recognition. It's really might have been generous, but they were doing it because, so they can get some likes, they can get some, some fame, you know? And it's, it changes the whole picture, doesn't it? And Cass knows this, you know, if, if I didn't tell her I was going to tell this story, but anyway, it's happening anyway. Cass says, uh, yeah, whenever, if Cass goes out and, and for some reason, like Dave was talking about, and I somehow get some, get some work done around the house, you know, I don't, I don't, I do a bit around the house, but let's be honest, Cass does the most of it, all the washing, all the cleaning, she does pretty much all of it. But if I do go, and if she's out, and I get in there and do some vacuuming, could put a load of washing on, and she comes back and I, I want to tell her about it, you know? Oh, look what I've done. Look, all the washing's out and the line, and look, at the, it's all vacuumed and stuff. And she's like, well, that's great, but you've, you've kind of ruined it by, by, by doing it because you want recognition for it, you know? 
Now, it does change it. We might think, oh, well, it doesn't really make a difference. You know, it still happened, but it changes the whole motivation behind what we're doing. Cass knows that it dilutes the goodness of what I've done. Now, the Samaritan in this story, he's not like that. He seems to, to leave before the guy's even conscious enough to thank him. He gives the innkeeper money, two days' wages, and then leaves and says he'll come back and pay the rest. He isn't doing this for the recognition. So we've got to add that as well too. We're looking at this minimum bar for earning eternal life. We've got costly compassion, all-inclusive, and without any recognition. Do that and we can earn our eternal life. But I think we've got a problem here, don't we? We can't, we can't do that. I, can't, I certainly can't do that. There's some in this church that are incredibly kind and righteous people, but I don't believe even they can do this all the time. It's too hard. It's too hard. So what are we going to do? We've, we've been tracking through this parable, looking at what the minimum that Jesus, that, 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 that the law demands for salvation, and we can't do it. Where to from here? Well, I've got very good news. Very, very good news. This parable is much more than a story of what it takes to be a moral person. It's more than just what it takes to be like the Samaritan. Jesus has infused the gospel within this parable, and we see this because Jesus didn't tell this story to a Samaritan. He told it to a Jewish lawyer, and where does he put him in the story? Where is the Jew put in this story? The person that he's telling the story to, he's lying, beaten up, stripped of clothes, and half dead on the side of the road, completely incapable of saving himself. And what he wants this self-justifying Jewish lawyer to know, first and foremost, is that he can't earn his salvation. He needs an incredible act of grace to save him. The Jewish lawyer, he's trying, to, he's trying to be good, he's trying to justify himself, he wants to earn his way. The whole question of this, who is my neighbor, is trying to cut it down the list to a manageable one. He wants to earn his salvation, but he doesn't need more rules. He needs a savior. He needs grace. That's what's gonna transform his heart. That's gonna give, give him the motivation to live out these principles. Now we need to know, we need to know this message too. We, we want to be the Samaritan. But firstly, we need to recognize that the way the guy lying on the side of the road, half dead in desperate need of a savior, we're bleeding out. We, we can't save ourselves. We need grace. Costly compassion, all inclusive, without recognition, they're excellent principles from this story, but these, these aren't the minimum for earning salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying. Our eternal life is secure in Jesus. We've been looking at these the wrong way around. These aren't the path to salvation. These aren't the path to salvation. These are principles that a saved life lives by. When we accept the incredible grace that has been shown to us, then we can better live out these principles. We can better live out costly compassion because we have the example of Jesus who gave his life in the ultimate act of costly compassion. We can do so for all people because Jesus did this for us, even when we were his enemy. And we don't need recognition because our names are already written in the book of life. Be encouraged too because I see this lived out in many people in our church. Not, not perfectly, of course, of course not. Not enough to earn our salvation, but lives that display costly compassion to many people without looking for recognition. There are so many examples that I could give just from this room if we had the time. One, one quick one that jumps out to me is just to, to finish, is just is a lady in our church who loves the, loves the kids, 
loves the children, gives their time to kids' church, but she's also there for the seniors. I see her helping mobility-impaired seniors get to the senior service and look after them. She freely gives her time to many different people and groups. She displays costly compassion and is all-inclusive. She's even there at the working bee with her back getting sore from cleaning many of these chairs. I'm not going to mention her name. She isn't doing it for the recognition. She knows that she's not earning her salvation. She already has her eternal life in Jesus, and that's her motivation, to be a blessing to others and live out these principles. I'm just going to pray as we close, and the team will come up. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Lord. That we, we were dead in our sins, and you chose to extend grace to us. Lord, we want to live out this challenge of the Good Samaritan, but we recognise we can't earn our salvation. It's a free gift. Help us to recognise, Lord, that your gift is so great that it actually changes our lives. To live full of compassion, ready to pay the cost to our own comfort, to our own standard of living. Sometimes we can guard our time and our money because we want to get security from our lifestyle, Lord. And there's nothing wrong with good things, Lord. Nothing, nothing wrong with those things, but we want to be vigilant, Lord, against letting them take precedence over you, Father. Well, we want to be people that have changed lives. And we need to recognize first, Lord, that you've saved us. First, that you've saved us. And then we want to use that, we want to share that with people. We want to live out this costly compassion. We want to be all-inclusive, Lord. It's for everybody. We're a diverse bunch, and that's a beautiful thing, Lord. And we, we want to do it without hoping for recognition. If we get encouragement, that's good. That's fantastic. That's lovely. But that's not our motivation, Lord. We're not doing this to be for, for man's praise, Lord. We're doing this because you've saved us, Lord. Amen.